It's good to be with y'all. Hey, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 1, Galatians 1. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you, it should be a white paperback Bible on the bench where you are seated. Um, you can open that, turn to page 565. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. Uh, that's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Um, if this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and uh, man, we're really, really glad that you're here. Um, if you would, take a moment, fill out the Connect card, uh, and that's uh, attached to the bulletin that you should have received when you walked in this morning, and that's just a good way for us to get to know some information about you and uh, know how we can get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family at Veritas. Uh, fill that out, particularly one thing, uh, the prayer request form part on there. Um, we are counting an honor and a joy to be able to pray for you this week. So if you take a few moments, jot a few things down uh, for prayer requests, and we, we'd love to, um, to take that and, and be able to pray for you this week. Um, we count an honor and a joy to be able to do that. Um, all right, let's dig into Galatians 1, 6 through 9. This is uh, our second sermon in a series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we're going to be reading 6, verse 6 through verse 9 of chapter 1. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, let's listen with reverence and joy. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the grace of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of our salvation. We thank you for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Lord, we ask that you um, would help that gospel, help me, help us, help, help this church now to hear, to, to, to receive, to uh, be transformed by that one true gospel. Would you help me to be faithful to that one true gospel and to what this particular text says? If there's anything I say that's wrong, Lord, would you rebuke me and reprove me? Would you, um, would you cause uh, the listeners to, uh, to forget about that and to take what is good and hold fast to what is good? Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You are the one true God of the one true gospel. You are the fount of all blessing. So to you, we, we cling now. And ask for help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. All right. So recently, um, I went to a hockey game uh, for the first time. Uh, I don't think I'd ever even watched a hockey game before. Uh, 
so I went to this hockey game. A friend of mine in Columbus um, got this like box seat at this Blue Jackets game. Uh, and he invited myself and several friends to come up and hang out and watch the game. Uh, and it was awesome. I had a really, really good time. Uh, and, and while I was there, someone who had much more knowledge uh, about hockey uh, than myself uh, was explaining some of uh, the game to me. And uh, one of the things he mentioned uh, was that th- there's this sort of unofficial role uh, on the team uh, in, in hockey, um, this, this role called uh, the enforcer. Uh, the, or the goon, or something like that. Uh, I, I sort of remember that from Mighty Ducks, um, but uh, they, they said that the, uh, the role on this team, is it's this role where the person fulfilling this role is supposed to kind of agitate players from the other team and, and kind of distract them by being uh, rough and getting them off their game. And, and not only that, but it's, it's mainly a, a role, a job to respond to dirty or foul play uh, from uh, uh, the other team whenever that sort of thing happens. So w- when that sort of thing happens, that kind of stuff happens, the enforcers are supposed to respond with like aggression and with, uh, with, by fighting and, and checking the opposition. They're, they're the fighters. They're the, the kind of contenders, the enforcers for the team. Uh, and we can kind of think of the Apostle Paul fulfilling that role here right now. Uh, he, he, he is, uh, he's writing, he's, he's, he's not always playing this role. I mean, if you read the, uh, the other letters to, like, the other churches and the epistles, the, the pastors to the New Testament, uh, you, you don't see Paul always fulfilling this sort of role. But here in Galatians, Paul is lit. I mean, he, he, he is upset, and he comes out with fists up and, and ready to fight. He, he comes at them cursing and exclaiming, uh, which is not something we see really anywhere else from Paul. Uh, normally he starts out with like thanksgiving or a blessing uh, to the church he's writing to. He's thanking God for their faithfulness in the gospel and blessing them. But instead of giving thanks here, he rebukes. Instead of blessing, he curses. Even surprisingly, uh, in, in other letters, in, in, his, in his letter to the church in Corinth, um, really interesting, he, he starts out with thanksgiving in that letter, which is fascinating because I mean, people at Corinth, the church at Corinth, they were getting drunk on the communion wine. The way that they were practicing spiritual gifts was a mess. Um, and, and, and not only that, there was sexual immorality going on in that church that would make Hugh Hefner blush. Like, it was, it was getting pretty rowdy in Corinth. But Paul writes to them, and he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. He says that to the church in Corinth. And that was, that was a normal part of writing letters. After the uh, describing who is sending the letter and describing who the letter is sent to and then a salutation, there's always, uh, in, in letters written at this time, in this part of the world, there's always kind of an exchange of pleasantries, saying, I'm so thankful for you. You're so wonderful, praising uh, the people that are receiving this letter for their virtue and their faithfulness in the gospel. It's a, a normal kind of practice. But we don't see that in Paul's letter to the Galatians here. He doesn't start out with praise. He doesn't start out with thanksgiving. He doesn't start out with expressing a desire to be with them. He starts off, he starts out by stating that he's astonished. And then he, he checks, he, he violently responds to the opposition, these Judaizers. He, he, he says that these Judaizers uh, are, are heretics and that if the Galatians agree with them, then they are too. 
He, he, he starts off by saying that anyone who preaches a gospel contrary to the one that they received is accursed. They are, the word is anathema. They're accursed. They're cursed by God. Paul is livid, and he's not being shy about it. He's, he's fighting. He's wrestling. He's contending for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. He believes that the gospel is worth fighting for, and so that's what he does. He fights for the gospel. He fights for the preservation of the truth of the gospel in his letter to the Galatians, and this is where we see here in, uh, in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, we, we kind of see the initial jab, uh, the, the, the initial kind of stinging jab, and, and, and Paul's going to launch into a number of arguments in the first several chapters that are more like kind of haymakers, but this is the, the initial stinging jab uh, of his fight, of his argument. He says that the Galatians have deserted the gospel by believing a distorted gospel, and he calls them back to the one true gospel. And so that's the kind of big idea for this morning. Paul is astonished that the Galatians have deserted the gospel by believing a distorted gospel, and he calls them back to the one true gospel. So we'll unpack that by looking at the desertion, the distortion, and the one true gospel. The desertion, the distortion, and the one true gospel. Firstly, let's look at the desertion. Now, there was a good reason that Paul was in fighting mode here. Uh, there is an emergency going on in Galatia. Uh, remember uh, last week we talked a little bit about the mess that the Galatian churches were in as Paul writes this letter to them. You'll remember that Paul had gone through Galatia uh, while planting churches in the Gentile world. And uh, when he was there in Galatia, the gospel was preached. Uh, miracles were performed. They saw many come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And so they established local churches there. And you can read about that in Acts 13 and Acts 14. Uh, it, was, it was an extremely fruitful missionary journey. But no time at all, these heretical heralds known as the Judaizers came in and began to preach a gospel to the Galatians uh, in which they said that, that receiving the grace of God by simply trusting in Christ was not enough for the Galatians to be justified before God. But rather, they, they needed to add works of the law. They need to, needed to add works of the law to the work of Christ if they really wanted to be in right standing before God. And this was the, the typical kind of teaching that you would get from the Judaizers. They were these, these Jewish Christian legalists who followed behind Paul on his missionary journeys and to deceive churches by telling them that they needed to add works of the law on top of faith in Jesus if they wanted to be truly put in right standing with God. And so Paul, he writes this letter to the Galatians with urgency to call them back to the one true God and his one true gospel. He says that believing... This false gospel, that believing that one can be made right with God by works of the law or by some mix of faith and works is to desert the one true God and is a complete and total distortion of the gospel. This is what he says. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They are deserting him who called, him, him who called him, them in the grace of Christ. Probably what comes to mind when you hear that word desert is, uh, it's, it's like a military term, right? Um, <coughs> it describes someone in the military who's uh, abandoning their post. It, it, it describes someone who, who goes AWOL. They desert their duties. They desert their fellow soldiers. They desert their uh, commanding officers who are directly over them. But the word used to describe what the Galatians had done here or were doing here is a bit more extreme than that. 
Uh, deserting, as we would commonly understand it in military terms today, means to simply drop your gun and to walk away, kind of disappear uh, and, and run away from your duties. But the word used to describe what the Galatians were doing here uh, it would, would, uh, would mean more than that. It would, it would mean not just simply dropping your gun, not just simply leaving your post, but then also going over to the other side, picking up their weaponry, and fighting on and for their side instead against the military that you were previously fighting for and on their side. Uh, so this, this would describe something more akin to treason. It's a transfer of allegiance. It's someone who is a traitor. Now he's not saying, though, that they had gone too far. Notice he says you are deserting him, not you have deserted him. So they haven't fully backslidden yet, they, but they're playing with fire. They're, 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 they're on their way, and if they don't return, if they don't redirect course here, if they don't repent, then they, like the Judaizers, are to be accursed by God himself. And there are a number of things that could be said ab- about this desertion, but I want to point out just one thing for now. The desertion of this gospel is a desertion of the one true God. So it's it's personal. This is a personal desertion. Notice Paul says you are so quickly deserting him. You you are so quickly deserting him, not you are so quickly deserting sound systematic theology, which they were. Not you are so quickly deserting a, a system of salvation. Not you are so quickly deserting a set of principles. Rather, you are deserting him. So when the Galatians turn away from the gospel of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone and add the word and in replacement of the word alone, they're turning away from the God of all grace. They're turning away from Christ himself. They're diluting the 200 proof gospel of grace and in doing so, they're turning away from the Savior himself. This is personal. To to try to change or to disbelieve the gospel is idolatry. Which is a major reason why Paul is so astonished here. He's dumbfounded. How how could the Galatians turn away from a God who's been so gracious and merciful to them? How could they turn away from a God so beautiful and so excellent and so good? How could they turn away from him? Of course, if you've read much of the scriptures or you've observed the behavior of us professing Christians, this is, you know, this is not abnormal. We human beings, we're hard, we're fickle creatures, we're sinful, we're, we're easily deceived. Our, our hearts are, are sinful and wicked and prone to wander. Calvin once said that, uh, that each human being, even from their mother's womb, we're, we're all master craftsmen of idols, constantly creating idols in our hearts. And there's a story in Exodus 32 that illustrates this well. And in Exodus 32, um, the Israelites uh, were just rescued uh, from Egypt, from the bondage of slavery in Egypt by Yahweh, the Lord. And, and he literally just rescued them um, from, from slavery. And, and not only that, but he had literally just made his covenant with them and, and just told them, you are going to be my people, and I so graciously said, you, you are going to be my people, I am going to be your God. And not only that, but he just gave them the Ten Commandments. 
um, which is an expectation for how they're supposed to live. And, and one of those Ten Commandments is, you shall not make for yourself carved images. You shall not make for yourself carved images. That's, that's the, the second commandment. Number two on the top ten list, don't make carved images. And then what do we see? Mo- Moses goes up on the mountain to pray. And as he's up on the mountain praying, God says to him, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And Moses goes down. What have they done? They formed a statue, a golden calf, out of the jewelry that they had. And they were bowing down to it and worshiping it and calling it their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Moses, like Paul here, he was lit. He did, like, he did damage to these people. And Paul shows the same kind of urgency like Moses did here because there's a lot at stake here. The glory of God is at stake here. The salvation of the Gentiles is at stake here. The purity of the gospel is at stake here. They were abandoning the gospel. They were abandoning Christ. They were abandoning the good news of the the cross and the empty tomb. They were abandoning the good news of God's unmerited, or, or, or rather demerited kindness to undeserving sinners. The gospel says that Christ died for our sins and rose again so that we could be justified and put in right standing before our God and King. And the Galatians, they began to believe in another gospel. And in doing so, they weren't just adopting a new set of doctrine, though they were doing that. They were deserting Christ, their Savior, the one mediator between God and man. And it's easy for us to read this letter and to, to hear the story about the Israelites and, and to think, wow, th- these people must be dense. And judge them and, and scoff at them. You know, they, they had the Apostle Paul preach it. He's like the Michael Jordan of preaching. No one preached the gospel like the Apostle Paul. Dude preached the gospel like nobody else. And then just a short time later, they turn away. They start believing another gospel, a gospel of salvation by grace and works. It must be dense. And of course, they are. But, but we suffer from the same condition as they do. We, we suffer from the same thing. We suffer from what we could call gospel amnesia. Even if it's not in the same measure, in the same way that the Galatians are doing here, we all struggle with gospel amnesia and, and measure. We forget the gospel. We, we forget. That's, that's what's happening every time your conscience is weighed down and troubled by guilt and fear and shame. That's what's happening when you shrink back from knowing and being known by others. That's what happens when you shrink back from confessing your sin. That's what happens when you shrink back and, and, and live in hidden sin. You're forgetting the gospel. You're forgetting Christ. You're forgetting. You're, you're deserting Christ and His grace. You're transferring allegiance. If any of those things describe you at all, which I'm sure they all do in measure, I'll just, I'll just encourage you, come back. Repent and believe the gospel. Don't run away from, don't hide your sin. Speak of it openly. Tell others. Don't live in hidden sin. Don't be weighed down by guilt and shame and fear. Don't let your conscience make you linger. Confess your sin. Return to Christ. Come back to the gospel. Stop for a moment and, and say to yourself, self, you are forgiven. You, you are forgiven. You're freely and fully accepted by God at Christ's expense. You're freely and fully accepted by God at Christ's expense. 
There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. You're freely given kindness and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ purchased this for you. It's free. It's yours. You're fully and freely accepted in him. There's no reason to hide in shame, be weighed down by guilt and fear. Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient. We need to hear this over and over and over again. So Martin Luther, he famously said in his commentary on Galatians, I love this, he says, the gospel is the principal article of all true religion. It is therefore necessary that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. We need this beat into our heads continually, over and over and over. We can't hear it enough. Like we, we can't be too assured that we're freely and fully forgiven and accepted in Christ. We can't be too assured of the good news. We cannot hear enough. We forget it. We desert it. We buy into distorted gospels. That's why every single week here, we want to rehearse and remember the gospel as we go through our readings and our songs and prayers. That's why every single week, we want to get into our text for our sermon and make a beeline for Jesus. That's why every single week, we want to observe and receive the Lord's Supper to taste and see that Jesus is good and that he is enough, he is sufficient. Because we're prone to wander, we're prone to desert the one true God. And I'm certain that the Galatians were not continually coming back to this gospel over and over again. They they weren't having it beaten to their heads continually. And that's why when the distortion came, they weren't ready. Which brings us to our next point, the distortion. The Galatians were believing a distorted gospel, which is simply another way of saying that they were believing, what they were believing is no gospel at all. The Apostle Paul says that the Galatians were turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so the so-called gospel that the Judaizers were preaching and that the Galatians were believing was a, another gospel. But there's, there's not really another gospel, so it was a false gospel. And he uses this really interesting word to describe it, uh, what was happening. He says that they wanted to distort the gospel of Christ. And so that word distort, it, it, it means to mangle or to reverse something. It's, it's to, to put the cart before the horse, so to speak. Now, part of me sympathizes with the Galatians. I mean, they were, they were new Christians. And these Judaizers were, you know, they were baptized members of the church who had been around for a while. They'd been around, they were a part of the church. But as John Stott says, the church's greatest troublemakers are not those outside the church who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. And so the greatest troublemakers in the church are not like the new atheists, not uh, your liberal college professor. The, 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 the greatest enemy, the greatest troublemakers for the church are those inside the church who want to distort the gospel. The greatest troublemakers are those within the church who speak like Christians and act like Christians and identify as Christians, but who add or subtract from the gospel. They tell half-truths that wholly damn those who believe them. I mean, the Judaizers came, and, and they probably came and said all the right things at first. They probably would have said something along the lines of, yes, yes, we agree with Paul. We believe that there is one God and Father. We believe in Christ, his only son, who was born of a virgin and died on the cross, was buried, and, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that the way you enter into this is through repentance and faith. Yes, yes, we agree. 
But then they would have said, and that's all fine as far as it goes. But if you want the full gospel, if you want full salvation, if you want to be fully accepted by God, you need to be circumcised and take on the yoke of the Mosaic law. This is how we've always done it as God's people. This is how we've always done it. Instead of saying we're freely and fully accepted by God at Christ's expense, therefore we do good works. They said we need Christ's work and our good works to be fully accepted. It's a reversal. It's a mangling, a distortion of the one true gospel, which means that it's no gospel at all no matter how good or close to the real thing that it sounds. If you put good works before justification, if you put good works before acceptance, if you put good works before salvation, you've reversed it, you've distorted it, you've mangled the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 offers a good summary for us. It says that we are saved by grace through faith, but then only then, after that full acceptance, after that full salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, we see good works come in. We're saved by grace, through faith, for good works, verse 10 says. It's a, it's a gift of God's grace, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The, the, the gospel is not anti-good works. It, by no means is it that. But if you in any way whatsoever, seek to make those good works as being necessary for your acceptance before the throne of God, you've got a distorted gospel. You've got a distorted gospel. You know, I'm, I'm not all that good at uh, doing this or anything, but I actually really enjoy cooking at home. I should say, I don't actually have time to do it really anymore, but I used to enjoy doing it. I'd like to think that I will again one day. Uh, but I, I, I enjoy it, and it's, it's one of the things, one of the things I like about cooking is that you can kind of experiment, um, like, you know, you, you can kind of mess with different recipes and maybe take out this ingredient this time around and add it, add a, another one, or, or sometimes you don't have a few of the ingredients necessary for a meal, so you fill it in with different things that might go well with it. It's kind of fun, but a while back, I woke up one morning, and I thought, um, I'd, I'd like to surprise the family with pancakes when they wake up uh, this morning. So it's kind of a fun thing. Amy and Lavinia, they love pancakes, and so I thought, I'm going to make some pancakes for them. Um, and I thought, I've never really done it before because I don't really care for pancakes. Uh, that may be weird. Uh, but I, I, I've never really done it before, but I thought, how hard could it be? Just make pancakes. I, I know how to make things. And, uh, and so I went to town, started making pancakes, and uh, of course we didn't have everything needed for them. Uh, and so I started substituting things and messing around with things with the recipe, and it ended up being the most disgusting, weird pancake imposter ever. It's not real pancakes. It ended up not being pancakes at all. And, and Amy came out, uh, and, and she's just, what in the world are you doing? And uh, I said, I'm making pancakes. And, and she's, she could tell that what I was doing... It's obviously not making pancakes. And so she told me that pancakes are actually not like making chicken and roasted potatoes or anything like that. With those sorts of things, you can mess around with the recipe, but with pancakes, you don't mess with the recipe. You stick closely to the recipe. You don't mess with the order of things. It has to go in the right order, and, and you have to use the right ingredients when making pancakes. And so it is with the gospel. You don't mess with the recipe. 
There's, there's a recipe to the gospel. And if you start putting good works before the full salvation and acceptance of God, or if you dilute the, the message of the gospel with a message of justification through a mix of faith and works, if you talk about justification as a process rather than a, than a definitive declaration from the voice of God himself that this person is righteous in my sight, then you've lost it. You don't mess with the recipe of the gospel. If you take away one aspect of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then you've lost it. You'll end up with a disgusting imposter of a gospel, a distorted gospel, a reversed and mangled gospel. You don't mess with the recipe. And guys, this is not just a problem for the Galatians and Paul and the Judaizers in the first century, this is a very real and pressing problem for us in the church today. There are churches in our city who talk like Christians and act like Christians and profess to be Christians, but they're messing with the recipe. They're, they're preaching distorted gospels. There are churches in our city that, that deceivingly bear the name apostolic, but they preach against the Trinity, and they preach that you need to be saved by faith and by following a set of holiness standards found nowhere in the Scriptures. There, there are churches that preach in, in our city, have entertaining worship, and they claim to preach the gospel every week, but they never get around to confronting sin. There, there are churches in our city that preach that Jesus is a means to wealth and prosperity. There, there are churches in our city that say you are saved by grace and other things, by grace and baptism, by grace and penance, by grace and last rites. Churches that preach that, that, that you do what is in you and grace fills in the rest. They're all messing with the recipe. They profess to be Christians. They profess to believe in Jesus but which Jesus do, do they believe in? Not this Jesus. Not, not the Jesus who saves but also judges. Not the Jesus who, who, who alone is the sufficient sacrifice for sin. Not, not the Jesus whose righteousness alone makes us righteous before God and makes us just before God. Friends, there's only one true gospel and Paul says that the Galatians are turning to a different gospel here. They're turning to another one. And as soon as those words come out of his mouth, to clarify, he says, not, not that there is another one. He, he didn't want any of the Galatians, if even for a moment, to think that there was, there was some other gospel than the one true gospel. There's one true gospel. It's our last point, the one true gospel. And he goes as far to say that if he or another one of the preachers that were with him when he came there, or even if an angel from heaven swoops down and gives a message contrary to the one that Paul preached, then they were to be accursed. And that seems extreme, doesn't it? Is Paul and you, an apostle, an angel, other apostles? But to make his point, to show that he's, he's not being rash or overly zealous, he doubles down, he says, if anyone... If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let them be a curse. It's necessary. I mean, a, a surprising amount of calls have started by other gospels being preached by so-called angels from heaven. Mormonism stakes its claim on an angel visiting Joseph Smith. Mohammed is said to have received the Quran as a revelation from 
an angel. There, and there are many more who, who, who have claimed to have heard voices from heaven and have seen angels and to have received more accurate understandings of the gospel from them. Don't believe them. There is one true gospel, and it's found here in the scriptures. And these scriptures totally discount the possibility of God ever giving us a new gospel or ever changing the gospel. The, the good news of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is the only gospel. It is the one true gospel. And anyone who claims anything other than this one true gospel is the ultimate truth. And the message of God himself is to be accursed. There's one true gospel. And there's always been one true gospel. And there will always be one true gospel. And so I, I want to echo what the Apostle Paul says here. If anyone, even from this church, if myself, if another pastor from this church preaches something contrary to the gospel found in this book, if we mess with the recipe, if we distort the gospel, we are to be accursed. I am to be accursed if I preach something other than this message. Or something probably even more subtle. Something we're probably even more prone to. Even if we agree continue to agree with the truth of the gospel of Christ, but it's not central to the life of our church. Rebuke us or run away. If, if we begin to focus more so on good parenting or healthy marriages or making a difference in our city or having close relationships with others in our church or whatever else, more than the one true gospel, run away. And all those things are good things. Don't, don't hear me say that those are bad things. They're not, but they're not the gospel. They're not Christ in all of his beauty and sufficiency and excellence. They're not the power of salvation for all who believe. They're not of first importance. Christ is the gospel. Christ is the central th thing. Christ is the power of salvation. Christ is of first importance. Christ is the one true gospel. And so we need to come back to him over and over and over again. And to turn to anything else other than him is to, as the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2.14, we just read this earlier, the fountain, to turn away from the fountain of living waters and to dig out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. To forsake the, the spring, the fountain of fresh and clean and eternally abounding water and to turn to cisterns that collected runoff water, which collected silt and insects and all sorts of nasty stuff. And, and not only that, but these cisterns are broken and all the water drained out and what's left is this sludge, this nasty, muddy sludge at the bottom. And that's what we're doing when we seek salvation by any other means. That's what we're doing when we turn our focus and gaze from Christ and see, try to seek the real answer to the issues of life by right parenting or social change or any other, even good things like those things. Listen to what John Calvin says of the sufficiency of Christ. He says, we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation 
We are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth, he was made to be like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in the resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, of untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich supply of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. What else would we need besides him? What, what could we add to him? What, what, what could we add to his work in salvation? What could we add to Christ? He doesn't need our help in saving us. Rich supply of every kind of good abounds in him. In his infinite goodness and in his righteousness and grace and beauty and perfection, And so to think that we need Christ and good works, to think that there's something else that will give us a a better uh, satisfaction, if there's anything else we we say to fill, we need to fill in because Jesus isn't sufficient. It's ultimately just unbelief, which is the source of all sin in the first place. What we need is Christ, and all we need is Christ. One author said that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. There's there's nothing that we can look for. There's nothing we need to look for outside of him. There's no one else like Jesus. He's all we need. He's what we need. He's sufficient. He's enough. There's one true gospel because there's one true Christ. And we should look nowhere else for our satisfaction and sufficiency. We need Christ. May we not desert him. May we not distort his message. May we always find all that we need in Christ and in Christ alone in his one true gospel. It's time for us to close, so we'll we'll close and pray together and receive the Lord's Supper.